Hello everyone, my name is J.B. Hickson, and I am the president and founder of Not By Works Ministries, where I've served for 22 years now. I also have the distinct privilege of being the pastor at Plum Creek Chapel in the Denver, Colorado area, and also the president of Cornerstone Bible Institute in Hot Springs, South Dakota. For the last 32 years of my ministry, I have been passionate about the purity, clarity, and accuracy of the gospel, and I have been promoting the free grace position on uh, the gospel, what many call free grace theology. And I had the privilege, uh, really going back 32 years ago, to get involved in some of the early organizations that came together uh, to promote this perspective on grace. And I've spoken at conferences and been heavily involved in uh, this particular movement, if you want to call it that. Now, uh, about eight years ago, almost nine years ago now, I uh, preached a message at a conference in which I uh, talked about some of the problems within the free grace movement and some of the aberrations and some of those uh, issues that have kind of spun off from those who hold to a traditional dispensational grace view of the gospel. And I titled that uh, message, "What? Why I Am No Longer Free Grace. And it kind of got a little traction and kind of raised a, a bit of a stir. Of course, I was being uh, particular, uh, being intentionally provocative with the title. I, and I talked about in that video how uh, Ronald Reagan uh, when he was asked by a reporter why he left the Democratic Party, he said, look, I didn't leave the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party left me. In other words, he hadn't really changed his principles, but he felt like the party that he had been a part of no longer shared those principles. And that's kind of what I was getting at in that particular uh, video. But I feel like, you know, eight or nine years later, there's need for another update and further clarity. You know, we live in an age of labels, and I don't really like labels too much. They can really short-circuit the process of really getting to know what people really believe and what they really stand for. And besides that, labels mean different things to different uh, people. But we live in an age where people throw labels around without really knowing what they mean. And so the reason, uh, one reason anyway, that I decided to create this video this afternoon is because throughout my ministry, from time to time, I've been criticized because of my unwavering stand for grace. And I've been attacked online and accused of being a heretic because I believe in free grace. I believe that grace is free, as I'm going to demonstrate in this presentation. Now, often I'm not sure the person making the charge against me even has any idea what free grace is. But nevertheless, they choose to use that label as a pejorative characterization of me and our ministry with Not By Works Ministries. Now, we should never forget the powerful words of the 18th century theologian William Paley, who said, There is a principle which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance, and that principle is contempt prior to examination. Einstein said something similar when he said, quote, Condemnation without examination is the height of, of ignorance. You know, it's stunning to me how many people hastily condemn certain truths without ever stopping to study them and see what they really teach. So I thought it would be good uh, to just take some time and address this issue of free grace and hopefully clear up uh, some misunderstandings. So what is free grace? What is free grace? Let's start with the meaning. And when I talk about free grace, the meaning, I want to go back to the Word of God and talk about what does that phrase mean according to Scripture. Because after all, the phrase free grace comes directly from the Greek text of the New Testament, as we shall see. It is thoroughly bi biblical. You know, unlike other 
labels like Calvinism or Arminianism or Wesleyanism that are named after human beings and creators of a man-made system, the phrase free grace is taken directly from Scripture. It comes from Romans 3.24, where we read, "...being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." Now, the word freely that you see on the screen there in Greek, of course, the New Testament was originally written in Greek, and my uh, verses that you're going to see throughout this message are from the New King James English translation, but the original Greek word here was an adverb, uh, dorion, dorion, and it means literally given as a free gift, given without cost, without charge, and this adverb is used nine times in the New Testament, usually translated freely. So if you go back to Romans 3.24, he says, we are justified freely by his grace. And it talks, it, it, it modifies the verb justified. It explains how we were justified, but it's used in a number of other places. Uh, I mentioned it's used nine times. For example, it's used in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 7, where Paul says he preached the gospel free of charge. That is, he didn't charge anything. And that phrase free of charge is one word in Greek, and it's that uh, adverb dorion meaning freely. Or Jesus himself used the phrase twice in Matthew 10, 8, when he was speaking to the 12 disciples, and he said, freely you have received, freely give. Again, it's the adverb dorion, freely, freely. In Revelation 21, 6, we see the word used again. When Jesus, at least most scholars believe it was Jesus, said, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I say most scholars believe it was Jesus as opposed to God the Father. But in any event, he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely, to him who thirsts. There it is again. Freely, without cost. That adverb, dorion. At the very end of the Bible, in chapter 22, we read of Revelation, we read, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let him who hears say, Come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. There it is again. So, if you go back to Romans 3.24, the key verse here, we see we are justified freely by his grace. That adverb, freely, modifies the verb justify, dikeao, dikeao, and it means our being made right with God, our being declared positionally righteous before God. And he's explaining that that is completely free of charge and occurs only by God's grace. So think about it. That's what free grace is. In fact, the term grace, by definition, has to be free because it's a gift, and a gift has to be free. If you charge for a gift, it's not a gift. But we'll say more about that in a moment. So we are justified freely by His grace. But there's another Greek word that also helps us understand the meaning of free grace. In fact, two different additional Greek words. Another key passage is Romans chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul says the free gift, the free gift is not like man's offense. He's contrasting here the first Adam, uh, through which sin entered the world and caused us all to be under the penalty of sin, which is eternal separation from God in a literal uh, place called hell, a literal place of torment. And he's contrasting that with the second Adam, the one through whom redemption was made possible, the one who was the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. It's very important. This is a very important verse for understanding the freeness of our eternal salvation and its relationship to God's grace. Two different words are used for free here. The first one you see it highlighted there, free gift. It's actually one word in Greek. It's the word charisma, and it simply means free gift, just the way the New King James translates it. It's used 17 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's translated gift, sometimes it's translated free gift, but it means free because, of course, a gift by definition is always free. 
So he says, but the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, talking about Adam and original sin, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Now there's the second word for free. Even though in the New King James it only translates it with the word gift, it's actually the word dorea, the noun form of the adverb we've been looking at already. Remember we looked at Dorian, this is Dorea, the noun, and it means free gift. <laughs> Just like the adverb means something given freely, the noun means a free gift. So they could have just as easily translated that word gift as free gift. And so then this passage would say, But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man Jesus Christ abounded uh, to many. This word, this noun, free gift, is used 11 times in the New Testament, and it's almost always translated gift, but again, it means, as we saw with the adverb, free gift, because a gift, of course, by definition, is always free. So if you look at Romans 5.15 again, he says, The free gift is not like the offense, for if by one man's offense many died, much more, by the, much more the grace of God and the, again, free gift by that grace through one man abounds to all. So what Paul is saying here is that by God's grace, this free gift of eternal salvation is available to anyone, anyone who believes. And that's what grace is. It's unmerited favor. And by calling it free, we're not only using the biblical modifiers of this word in several places, of this term grace in several places, but we're also helping people to understand because the word grace really has lost its meaning in a lot of circles in English today. You know, people don't understand what grace is. Is it something you say before a meal? Is it the way you describe a ballet dancer? Is it some lady's name? <laughs> what is grace, right? So the Bible defines grace as free. And so that phrase, free grace, has come to be very helpful in communicating the biblical concept of grace. Grace is unmerited free favor. And when you think about it, it has to be free, because if there was something we could do to somehow merit God's favor, then Jesus didn't have to die on the cross. He didn't have to shed his blood. So it's nothing in our hands we bring simply to the cross we cling. It is a free gift. And more than 160 times, the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone as the only way to receive that free gift. Just as you might receive a free gift on your birthday or at Christmas or some other occasion by physically reaching out and taking it from the person who's giving it to you using your hands. When it comes to the spiritual gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life, the way we receive that gift, that our hands, spiritually speaking, so to speak, are, is faith. Faith is the means by which we receive eternal life. And so this concept of grace and the contrast between grace and works is seen uh, throughout the Bible, particularly in Romans. For example, in chapter 4, Paul says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace. Why? Because grace and works are direct opposites. If you work for something, you can't say to your boss when he gives you your paycheck, Oh, you were so gracious. No, he wasn't. You earned it. That's, it's called work. It's a bilateral contract. You do the work, you get the paycheck. But a free gift, if someone gives you a gift and you had no strings attached, you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it, boy, that's grace. Now that's grace. Notice he says, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. There's that connection again between free grace and justification. It is our faith that is accounted for righteousness. Remember how we said the adverb Dorian modifies uh, 
the verb justify, dikaio, here we see it again, that we are accounted as righteous by our faith because of God's free gift of grace. And you go to Romans 11, we see again the contrast between works and grace. If by grace, then it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace, right? That's what I just kind of said in my illustration about an employer and an employee. If it's by grace, it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But he goes on to say, if it's of works, then it's no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. In other words, grace and works do not mix. We do not need our good works to prove that we've received the free gift of eternal life. And when someone gives you a gift, they don't ever, that I've ever come across anyway, come back years later and say, uh, did you really receive that gift from me? I mean, typically they know you did because they were there. They handed it to you and you took it. And yet in the spiritual realm, we've got this false teaching that is so pervasive that suggests that somehow we can declare that someone never received the gift because their works later on don't meet up with some godly standard, some moral standard. But salvation is not by works. In any sense of the term, it is by grace, and grace and works don't go together. Grace has nothing to do with works. That's what makes it grace, and it is absolutely free, as we just showed from several passages. So that's the meaning. If you want to distill it down into one definition biblically of the meaning of free grace, it would be free grace means God's unmerited favor in providing our eternal salvation absolutely free at no charge to us whatsoever. That's what we mean in theological circles when we use the term free grace. I mean, it sounds redundant. I can't tell you how many times through the years, 32 years now, people have come up to me and said, free grace, isn't that redundant? And it, it tells me two things. Number one, it tells me that they understand the meaning of grace according to the Bible, but it also tells me they don't understand the importance or might not understand the importance of grace. Because in the, in the Bible, when we see words that are repeated, they're repeated for emphasis. And the redundancy that Paul uses in calling grace free is to demonstrate how powerful grace really is. He didn't have to qualify it as free. It's inherent in the meaning of grace. But by being redundant, he shows us just how free, if, if there were degrees of freeness, but just how important, how significant this free grace is. It's similar to John 10, 28, where Jesus says, uh, He who believes in me shall never perish. I give you Actually, he says, I give you eternal life and you shall never perish. In Greek, it doesn't come through in English, but in Greek, it's a double negative. It's literally shall no never perish. Now, he didn't need to say it that way. Never perish means never perish. But by adding that double negative, no never perish, boy, it really emphasizes our eternal security. In the same way, when Paul uses the adverb freely and the noun free, he does so to make sure no one ever misses the point. Grace is free. Grace is free. That's the meaning of free grace. But what's the broader message in theological circles? With that understanding of the biblical theological terminology, the exegetical terminology within the text itself, what do we mean in theological circles today when we talk about the free grace message? Well, the phrase free grace has come to refer to those who understand that our salvation is totally free and there's nothing we can do to secure it or to keep God's gift of grace, eternal life, once it's received. And those who are like-minded on, on that issue are said to be uh, adopting a free grace perspective or a free grace theology or 
a free grace soteriology, that is, uh, the doctrine of salvation. And so there's a broader message. And, you know, one of the things that we need to understand right out of the, uh, the chute here is that there is a historic connection between dispensationalism and free grace. Dispensationalists have always been free grace. I mean, we could go back to Lewis Perry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Seminary, or C.I. Schofield, one of his contemporaries, or G. Campbell Morgan, or William R. Newell, J. Vernon McGee, Charles, the late Charles Robert, the late Robert Leitner. This is just a short list of some of the great men of faith and scholars and writers and radio hosts who promoted free grace. Now, they didn't wear that label as part of a movement, but in a day and age today in this culture where grace is absolutely under attack from all different directions and a works-based mentality to salvation is just pervasive, especially with the onslaught of Calvinistic teaching and this, this notion that we must bring something to the table if our faith is going to be real, otherwise it's spurious. With that whole you know, milieu, uh, we've adopted this label, many have, of free grace to sort of clarify what we mean. But all we're doing is saying the same thing that great dispensationalists of a bygone era said before us, that it is grace is totally, absolutely free. Now, of course, as I said earlier, we believe in free grace because the Bible teaches free grace, not because these great men of the faith believed it. But it's worth noting that those who claim to be dispensational, yet reject free grace theology, in so doing, are contradicting not only the plain teaching of Scripture, but also they're contradicting traditional historic dispensationalism. In fact, I would go so far to say is you cannot be a consistent dispensationalist. You cannot call yourself a dispensationalist if you don't believe in free grace. Now, by the way, I don't know who all is going to watch this video. You know, we've been uh, promoting uh, different videos uh, at conferences for 20 years, and so sometimes people watch a video that maybe have no idea what dispensationalism is. Dispensation is a biblical term also. It's the Greek word oikonomos, and it refers to God's stewardship and the way in which he interacts with man. It does not have anything to do with different ways of salvation. Mankind is always saved the same way from Adam to the new heavens and the new earth, and that is by grace through faith. Um, but as we read Scripture, we recognize in the progress of Revelation that God gives more information and expects more from us in response to that information in terms of the way in which we interact with Him and with each other. So, for example, today we're living in what Paul calls in Ephesians 3 the dispensation of the church age, which was a mystery, something previously unforetold, uh, in the Old Testament. So that's what we mean by dispensationalism. Fundamentally, dispensationalism comes down to three things. It, it means, first of all, that you see a distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church, because the Bible teaches that distinction. And secondly, it means that when we read the Bible, we read it in its literal, grammatical, historical sense. We don't go searching for deeper, hidden, mystical, spiritualized, goosebump meanings. We simply let the Bible speak in the way in which it was intended to speak, using words and grammar and nouns and subjects and verbs and syntax. And God communicated to us through words and we, there's only one way to interpret those words, right? And so that's what we mean by dispensationalism, a literal grammatical historical approach to studying the Bible, which, in, which in, you know, guarantees that you'll arrive at a distinction between uh, Israel and the church. And so going back to early days of those who were really promoting 
this dispensational idea. And again, it's 2,000 years old because it, it originates from the Bible in Ephesians 3. But as a kind of a group or people that were like-minded that came together and call themselves dispensationalists, uh, starting in the you know maybe the 19th century, uh, with great movements like the Niagara Bible Conference movement and the Dallas early seminaries like Moody and Dallas and, and the like, um, among those they've always been free grace. I mean, you read Chafer's book on salvation. It's the, the most beautiful, powerful, biblically accurate explanation of free grace you'll ever read. In fact, I, one of my books I wrote was called The Gospel Unplugged, and I, in the preface in there, I talked about how I referred to Chafer's book, Salvation, and I said, if you've not read that little book, it's a fairly short book, I said, put my book down, go read it first. Everybody ought to read that book. So before we get to the, the, the main message and sort of unifying themes of, of the free grace theology as it is today based on Scripture. I just wanted to make sure everybody understands the connection between dispensationalism and free grace. If you are summarily rejecting free grace because you think it's just a label and you really don't know what it means, and you certainly don't know what the Bible teaches about free grace, but yet you consider yourself a dispensationalist, you really need to think through that because you are an anomaly. Uh, and we talk about this, by the way, in the book Freely by His Grace. It was my honor and privilege to work with the late Roy Zook, another great free grace advocate, uh, as well as my friend and colleague Rick Whitmire to produce this book, Freely by His Grace. It was first published in 2012, and it really has become, in many ways, one of the standard soteriology textbooks for those who believe in a dispensational free grace approach to salvation. Uh, it's an amazing book. It had 17 chapters and 14 contributors, and uh, I was honored to serve not only as the editor of the project, but also to write two chapters. I wrote a chapter entitled, What is the Gospel?, and one called The Nature of Saving Faith. But we also included in this book, Freely by His Grace, a chapter by Lewis Berry Chafer entitled, The Theme of God's Grace. And I wanted to point out that the book contains two important chapters demonstrating the connection between dispensationalism and free grace. Uh, these are uh, chapter 15 by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Tommy Ice, entitled, What is Traditional Dispensationalism? And if you want a single, short, concise, chapter-length treatment of what is dispensationalism, a primer, if you will, on dispensationalism, that's the chapter to read. And then the very next chapter by another dear friend of mine, Tom Stegall, is entitled, The Link Between Dispensationalism and Free Grace. <laughs> so, you know, it needs to be said, again, that if you consider yourself to be dispensational in, the, in your theology, but you regret, reject free grace theology, uh, something is amiss. Something is amiss. So what do we mean by the message? We already defined what free grace is, that grace by its nature is free, and that Bible calls it free for emphasis. But what do we mean when we use that label? When, when, we, when we summarize the teaching of Scripture about eternal salvation, what do we find? Well, I'm going to give you several principles, uh, and I don't have the time to, to defend all of these uh, with Scripture, but I'm just wanting to sort of summarize, if you will, at the macro level, what the free grace message is. And if you're in agreement with these principles, then you're free grace, <laughs> whether you want to be or not. Uh, so first of all, uh, salvation, we believe, is received by faith alone in Christ alone, who died in substitutionary sacrifice 
for our sins and rose from the dead. Now, that's a pretty simple statement. In fact, many conservative Bible-believing theologians would say, sure, I believe that. But remember, particularly Calvinist and Reformed theologians, they have a different meaning of faith. They've redefined faith so that it includes three components. You see this pervasive throughout all of their writings, even to this day, contemporary writers use this term. But they talk about two kinds of faith, spurious faith and genuine faith. Even though the Bible never uses that distinction in any way, shape, or form, there's just one kind of faith. Faith is the confidence or assurance that something is true. And it's not the kind of faith that saves us because there's only one kind in Scripture, faith. It's what you believe that saves you. When faith meets the right object, the result is eternal life. And so we believe that you know it's faith alone in Christ alone, the Son of God who died and rose again for our sins. So people can and do have faith in many things, but that doesn't save them. For example, a, a Muslim's faith in the five pillars of the Islamic faith is faith. He believes it. But it's wrong. It won't save him. So Calvinism teaches, by contrast, that it's not just what you believe and having the right object and content of faith, but you have to do it the right way. And it has three components, a census, notitia, and fiducia. And I don't have time to get into that, but I've dealt with that extensively in other videos and books. Uh, But just know that in their scheme, two people can have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again and is the only hope for salvation and that He paid their personal penalty for sin and they trust in Him for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But yet in their scheme, one could be saved and the other not because if one of them doesn't have this volitional element of a promise or pledge to forsake sin or do well or you know pledge to be good and so forth, then his faith was spurious because it didn't have all three components of saving uh, faith. So... I just wanted to point out that distinction because a lot of people would say, well, Calvinists believe that. Well, they, they would affirm this statement, but they would mean something different by it because they redefine faith in a way that the Bible does not define a faith coming out of the Synod of Dort. So first and foremost, the free grace message is that salvation is received by faith alone in Christ alone who died in substitutionary sacrifice for our sins and rose again. And then elaborating further, we would say eternal salvation can never be attained by one's own efforts at moral improvement. There's nothing you can do to, be, to, to gain God's favor. That's why it's got to be given as a gift. And that's why it had to be paid for by the shed blood of Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As we continue to talk about the free grace message, we would say eternal salvation can never be attained through a plom- promise or pledge to do better. See, a lot of people say, you know, to get saved, you've got to promise or pledge to do something. Or they would say that you've got to make some kind of commitment to God. But eternal salvation can never be attained through making a commitment of some kind to God. It can never be attained by forsaking or turning from sin. If that's all it took to be saved, well, then anybody could be saved. And Jesus didn't have to die in your place and my place, right? Uh, Salvation isn't, you know pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and saying, well, I'm going to just stop sinning or I'm going to promise to do better. That's not salvation. It's a free gift. Eternal salvation can never be attained through a willingness to stop sinning or a willingness to improve your behavior. See, what people forget and, and what the Bible couldn't be clearer about is that salvation is not a bilateral contract. It's not you sitting down with God, bringing a host of things to the table and saying, okay, here's what I got, God, I'll do this, I'll stop doing that, I promise to do this, I'll turn from that, and God says, okay, good, you're in. 
No, it's, it's totally helpless and hopeless, soul under sin, born dead in our trespasses and sin. The only thing that can unlock the keys of heaven is our faith. When we trust in what Jesus Christ did for us, His finished work on the cross, in that instant, when we believe the gospel, we are born again and saved. And so salvation can never be attained through a willingness to stop sinning or improve one's behavior. Eternal salvation can never be attained through any effort that relegates salvation to some type of two-way contract or agreement between God and man. When it comes to eternal salvation, Jesus paid it all. He didn't pay most of it. He paid it all. So we receive the free gift of eternal salvation, fully paid for by the blood of Christ, by trusting Him and Him alone as the only one who can forgive our sin and save us from sin's penalty, namely, eternity in hell. And all who are born of the Spirit through faith in Christ have the assurance of salvation and are eternally secure in Christ. Assurance is the birthright of every believer. The moment you trust Christ, you're born again, adopted into the family of God, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, names written in the Lamb's book of life, justified, reconciled, redeemed. All of that happens at that one instant. And so therefore you can be sure. But for those who don't believe in free grace, that believe grace is not totally free, but actually we have to do something, then down the road when life takes an unfortunate turn or you yield to sin or you turn a rebellious eye to the Lord or you apostatize or you backslide, whatever the biblical terms that you want to use, then in those moments you're going to begin to wonder, am I really saved? Because you are under the mistaken impression that your eternal salvation was gained by something you did. Therefore, it might be disproven or, or worse yet, lost by something you did. But a gift given by God, cannot be taken away. See, you get eternal life at the moment you believe the gospel. You don't get eternal life when you die. Jesus said, I give you, present tense, eternal life, and you shall never perish. He said in John 5, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So if there's anything we could do after placing our faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as our Savior, that would somehow mean that we really don't go to heaven, then Jesus was a liar. What he really meant was, if you believe in me, I give you the possibility of eternal life or the potential for eternal life or the prospect of eternal life. But that's not what he said. He said, I give you eternal life, present possession. We have it right now. I have eternal life. You know how I know? Because Jesus said so. And so we don't get eternal life when we die. We get it when we believe the gospel. And the first so many years of that eternal life are lived in this physical body and this old sin-stricken earth. But we will continue on with our eternal life in glory, in the presence of our Savior. So assurance is a, a big part of this discussion. One of the passions that those who believe in the free grace message have is a, a passion for the objective basis for assurance rather than the subjective basis for assurance. And it really bothers us when other groups who reject the freeness of God's grace suggest that you've got to do something to be saved, like turning from sin or promising to be good or forsaking sin or pledging to, to follow God or making Him Lord or surrendering to Him as Lord of your life and all of those other things that the Bible never mentions in any sense are a requirement for our justification. And when you teach those things, it, it leads to the impossibility of assurance. Because think about it, if my eternal destiny is based upon my surrender, how do I know if I've surrendered enough? If my eternal destiny is based on my forsaking, how do I know if I've forsaken enough? If my eternal salvation is based on my turning from sin, what if I sin uh, down the road? 
You know, Paul describes the struggle within the Christian life of someone who's born again between the flesh and the spirit. And guess what? We sin. I don't recommend it. It's not healthy. It always leads to great unpleasantness. There are serious consequences for sin. But sin has no bearing on whether we go to heaven or hell once we've believed the gospel. And it certainly has no bearing on whether or not we've believed the gospel, which is what some people suggest. You didn't really believe if you're living like that, right? That's not what the Bible teaches. So that's the message in a nutshell, those several bullet points there. But there's one other thing that I'd like to uh, talk about before I kind of end uh, this. Uh, actually, a couple of things that I'd like to uh, talk about before I end this, uh, this presentation. First of all, some misconceptions you know, a lot of times when people hear the phrase free grace uh, and, of course, have no awareness that it comes straight from the Bible, as we saw earlier, they hastily jump to conclusions and develop misconceptions about free grace. And I'd like to address just three of these. Um, uh, first of all, some people suggest that free grace is a, quote, license to sin. In theological circles, this is often called antinomianism. And this is probably the most common misconception and, and the most unfortunate, frankly, because not only does the Bible specifically address this false notion, it also is illogical on its face. You know, in 32 years of ministry, I have never met a single believer, not one, who made the argument to me, quote, well, since I'm saved by grace, I think I'll go out and commit a bunch of sins. <laughs> I've never heard that. Quite the contrary, I've met hundreds of people who are motivated by God's amazing grace to live godly lives. I have a colleague who has suggested in his writings that whenever someone makes the claim that emphasizing God's free grace leads people to sin, we should ask them to give us examples. Don't let them get by with that. Give me an example. Rarely can anyone give us an example of a person who uses grace as an excuse to live an ungodly life. And those who have this misconception about free grace are not being logical. They're speculating based on their own preconceived aversion to grace. They're driven by a works-based mentality according to which we must earn our salvation, they say, or at the very least prove it by good works. And so they're essentially afraid of grace. We can't preach too much grace. It might lead people to sin. It's absurd. It is absolutely absurd. Uh, I say you cannot possibly preach too much grace. <laughs> It is the unifying, undergirding, foundational theme of all of Scripture. We need more grace. And part of the problem is that people have been abusing grace and misteaching grace and adding works to grace and doing exactly what Paul said you can't do in Romans 4 and Romans 11. The notion that free grace amounts to a license to sin is the exact opposite of grace. Romans 6 directly addresses this issue. Remember, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? But he says, Certainly not. Certainly not. Now, it's very important to understand whenever Paul uses that phrase, certainly not, as it's translated here, it's, it's literally meganoita. It's uh, sometimes translated God forbid or may it never be. Whenever he uses that phrase, meganoita, he's always denying a false conclusion from a correct premise. And the correct premise is what he said at the end of chapter 5, which is that wherever sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. In other words, you cannot out-sin God's grace. But he says, but it doesn't follow then that you would want to just keep on sinning. <laughs> That's uh, meganoita. Of course not. Certainly not. You would never want to do that. Those of us who have been saved by grace and are adopted into the family of God, those of us who are positionally in Christ because we've received the free, free gift of 
salvation by faith. Those of us who've been set free from sin. Why would we want to act like the old man again? See, this notion that somehow God's grace promotes sin is just not logical. God's grace motivates us not to sin. The Bible explicitly says that. It tells us grace doesn't lead to sin. It leads to the opposite of sin. It leads to godliness. Look at Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it teaches us what? That we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. So the next time someone suggests to you that promoting grace leads to a license to sin, point out Titus 2, 11 and 12 and remind them that no, no, no. Grace is an incredible motivator to encourage us to encourage us to live godly lives. And it's only those who are caught up in this vicious false doctrine cycle that somehow they think their commitment, their promise, their pledge, their willingness to follow God saved them, that they continue this vicious cycle of failure upon failure upon failure. Because you cannot do it in the flesh. You can't do it in the flesh. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. You know, those with this misconception or charge that simply accepting the free gift of eternal life by grace through faith is too easy. <laughs> it should be harder to get saved, they say. In fact, one popular, very popular Calvinist teacher even wrote a book entitled Hard to Believe, explaining how hard it should be to believe the gospel. You know, you've got to bring something to the table. If it's, not, it's just not about simply believing the gospel. You've got to submit, commit, promise, pledge, turn, forsake, surrender. All of those words I just said, he mentions in this book as a means by which we have eternal life. If I sound passionate, it's because I've been walking down this road for 32 years and preaching the gospel and promoting the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel from a free grace perspective. Because I believe that the Bible teaches eternal salvation is absolutely free, paid for solely and in full by the blood of Christ, sometimes people suggest I'm teaching what's called easy believism. That's the second misconnection, misconception that I want to talk about. Easy believism. They say, oh, I'm making it too easy to be saved. Well, the fact is, the one and only means of salvation is pretty easy to understand. It's pretty simple. In fact, you can state it in ten words or less. Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. All you got to do is trust Him. It's so simple a child can understand it. See, children understand what it means to trust because they haven't been bogged down and had their minds cluttered by a lifetime of trying to earn a living and earn a college degree and all of those things. They just simply trust their parents for clothing and warmth and shelter and food. So when you come to a child and you say, you're a sinner and you're going to go to hell because of the penalty of that sin, but there's a man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, he died for you on the cross and he rose again, proving himself to be God and defeating death, hell, and the grave and paying your penalty. And if you'll just trust him, that Jesus, he'll forgive you and he'll give you the gift, the irrevocable gift of eternal life. And it's free. All you got to do is receive it by faith. When you say that to a child, they understand it, right? So the concept is certainly easy. Uh, and, and those who don't believe in free grace really struggle with that because they say, oh, I can't be that easy. You got to bring something to the table. You got to do your part, you know. You got to turn or something. Um, but the fact of the matter is, 
there's a difference between, between being simple to understand and actually simple to take that step. You see, for some, in fact, for many, it's not always easy to place your faith in Christ. It's not easy to believe you can get us something as valuable as eternal life for nothing. <laughs> That's the ironic thing. When they, when they, again, use one of those labels, easy believism, they're suggesting that by teaching it's only by faith, we're making it too easy. They really, you really got to bring something to the table and do your part. But in a way, if they defined it differently, it is true. It, it's, it's not easy to believe. <laughs> uh, it's not easy for some to believe that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior. It's not easy to believe that God loves me in spite of my sin. It's not easy to believe that someone I've never met would pay my penalty, pay my personal sin debt on the cross, take my place, substitutionary atonement. It's not easy to believe Jesus Christ rose from the dead, frankly. And, and it's not easy to believe Jesus is the Son of God. And then there are those who add uh, this misconception where they, again, use a label cheap grace. Cheap grace. And frankly, this one is is a tired, old, silly label that, that just proves the people who use this label don't understand the biblical concept of grace. See, something that is free to begin with, and we've already demonstrated unambiguously through Scripture that you know grace is defined as free, Romans 3, 24 and elsewhere, but something that is free to begin with, by definition, is neither cheap nor expensive. You can't be cheap and free at the same time. You can't be expensive and free at the same time. Free is in a class by itself. And the biblical teaching that no sin can undo or cancel God's gift of grace to the believer does not cheapen grace. It demonstrates the power of grace, and it demonstrates a firm understanding of grace. The reason some people think grace is cheap is because they have the mistaken notion that good works or commitment are somehow required in order to be saved or required in order to prove that you really are saved. But God's grace, God's free gift, makes no demands, none. And I know even as I'm saying that, there are people that are watching this video that that doesn't sit well with you. And it doesn't sit well for me to keep emphasizing the freeness of salvation. But the Bible certainly emphasizes it. Again, the, one of the last verses in the Bible is, Whosoever will, let him come drink freely of the water of life. So free, free, free. I know that doesn't sit well because we think we have to earn it, and we've been so taught by false doctrine that we have to earn it, that it, 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 it chafes us. But we've got to define salvation the way the Bible defines it. And it defines it the way the free grace message uh, defines it. Grace makes no demands. If there were obligations placed upon us in order to go to heaven, grace would not be grace, and it certainly would not be free. So as I mentioned at the outset of this message, critics resort to labels when they cannot win the argument based on logic, and they may or may not even know what the labels mean. Uh, you know, labels like antinomian, easy believism, cheap grace are simply weak attempts to discount God's amazing grace on the part of some who don't really understand it. Now, before I finish, I, I want to, in light of the message that I gave eight or nine years ago, uh, entitled, Why I'm No Longer Free Grace, I want to kind of give some updates on the free grace, the movement, because over the years, those who believe in salvation by free grace, the way I've described it in here, in this message, they've sort of 
developed a number of different schools and institutions and parachurch ministries and you know, birds of a feather, feather tend to flock together. You tend to want to be around like-minded people, and there's a synergy there. And you go out and you preach the gospel, and you evangelize, and you train up believers based on this biblical concept that grace is free. And that's what Not By Works Ministries is about. In a very real sense, we're a part of that movement. You know, it was born out of that passion. Or ministries like Make It Clear Ministries with my good friend Dr. Stan Pons, and, and institutions like Cornerstone Bible Institute, where I'm uh, honored to serve as the president, is committed to promoting the traditional dispensational perspective on free grace, right? But within the movement, there are some other organizations that, while they share our passion for the freeness of salvation and, and reject any notion of good works being a part of it, over the years, they've, they've also begun to promote ancillary views, views kind of on the outskirts that really are incompatible with Scripture, in my view. And I addressed a number of these in the previous video. But there are two primary organizations that many tend to associate with the free grace movement. In fact, many people equate the free grace movement with these organizations. And I want to suggest that that's, that would be a mistake to do that. They are certainly very influential, and they've done some amazing work in advancing the message of grace. But the grace message is much broader and global than just these two relatively small organizations uh, here in America. And these are Grace Evangelical Society and the Free Grace Alliance. I have been a part of both. In fact, I was one of seven men that helped uh, begin the Free Grace Alliance, and I served as its first executive director for two years full-time. Uh, and Grace Evangelical Society, I've spoken at their conferences and have dear friends that are a part of that ministry. Uh, but those two organizations, in my mind, for me personally, uh, compromised on some issues uh, doctrinally that made me uncomfortable. And so I kind of distanced myself from them. But I still have great friends and colleagues that are part of those ministries. And I certainly uh, leave that up to e each individual to decide whether there's something that you would like to be a part of or go to their conferences or read their literature. But my main point is just that the free grace movement is much broader than these two organizations. But as it relates to some within the movement, uh, like any movement, uh, sometimes people kind of go off into the fringes and they get some aberrant views that develop. And so there are some mistakes within the free grace movement. In fact, uh, that is the reason why years ago I tongue-in-cheek said, I, I'm, I'm just going to call myself a dispensational grace guy and not use the label free grace because that label had been co-opted by what I perceived to be some fringe elements within our camp, so to speak. And it unfortunately had, you know, trickled down and a lot of people that aren't really familiar with this issue assumed because I called myself free grace or said I was promoting a free grace gospel, they said, oh, well, you must believe these things. And so I kind of distanced myself from those two organizations in particular and, uh, and, and, and from really using that as a theological label. But uh, the more I think about it, I'm not quite ready to give up the fight. I mean, the Bible uses the phrase free grace. So we just need to be aware that not all that glitters is gold, and you need to be good Bereans, and every time you see someone who says, yeah, I'm free grace, but they're teaching something that is inconsistent with Scripture, you know, call them on it and, and, uh, and, and be willing to, to recognize it. 
So a lot of the mistakes that are kind of emanating from uh, those who consider themselves free grace are based on things like a failure to distinguish between the Gospels and the Epistles, which is another way of saying a failure to understand the progress of Revelation and a failure to properly synthesize Scripture with Scripture. So like all doctrinal error, it comes down to hermeneutics, how you study the Bible. And if you have flaws in your Bible study method, it's going to lead to errors in your conclusions. And so um, in their zealousness for some, again, in their zealousness to keep works out of the gospel, which is to be commended, and it's what the Bible teaches, and it's what I'm passionate about, but in their zealousness to do that, some have kind of gone too far, and they're out of balance, and they, they, they mishandle certain portions of Scripture. Um, and, and another thing that is often an error, and I talk about this in chapter, I think it's chapter 10 of my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, where, where I deal explicitly with some of these errors, uh, they have an unbalanced appeal to the Gospel of John. Rather than seeing it as gospel genre and gospel narrative and how it fits into God's plan and, and, and you know, pre-church age and all of that, they, they misunderstand some of the things that were taught. So there are some reasons why they come up with these mistakes, but I just want you to be aware of these because as with any theological movement, um, you know, there are always some that are promoting fringe elements. And uh, I don't want anybody to associate me with those fringe elements I've told you what I believe. I gave you the bullet points of the free grace message, which I believe I can defend easily from Scripture. And yet others who would also consider themselves to be espousing a free grace message have some mistakes. And uh, don't you know, commit the logical fallacy of guilt by association. And don't think just because so-and-so is free grace and he believes one of these mistakes that I'm about to show you, that everybody who considers themselves free grace believes these mistakes. They do not. And I am on record in many places in books, journal articles, videos, and so forth, criticizing those within our own camp who I believe are making some mistakes, one of which is the crossless gospel or what I call the promise-only gospel. This is what I deal with in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. And that view is the view that a person does not have to have explicit knowledge that Jesus died and rose again to be saved. I mean, it sounds crazy, I know, and it's amazing that someone who's so passionate about the gospel can come to that erroneous conclusion. It just seems crazy. <laughs> but uh, there are those who consider themselves free grace that are preaching that, that you do not have to have any explicit knowledge that Jesus died and rose again for your sins to be saved. There are others who teach what's called kingdom exclusion. And this has sort of a, often been called a Christian purgatory, this idea that really bad Christians, when they die, are going to spend a thousand years weeping and wailing and gnashing their teeth, and then eventually be let out of that prison and allowed to go on into heaven for the eternal state. Uh, kingdom exclusion. It kind of goes hand in hand with this notion of punishment at the Bema. Uh, yet another mistake. I do not believe the Bible teaches that Christians will be punished at the Bema Judgment. The Bema Judgment is about reward or loss of reward, not punishment. Now, these are not stupid people who believe these things, and they make an exegetical and theological case for it. I just happen to have an honest disagreement with them. I think they're wrong. I think they're mishandling Scripture based on some of the uh, issues I mentioned just a moment ago, things like failure to distinguish between the Gospels and the Epistles, failure to understand the progress of Revelation, and failure to synthesize passages of Scripture correctly. 
But I'm not personally attacking them. I'm not saying they're stupid or ugly or mean or fat. I'm just saying, look, I disagree with you, and I think it's a big deal. In fact, it's a big enough deal that I don't want to associate with those who suggest that Christians who are waiting for the blessed hope, when, when they meet the Lord in the air, and it's supposed to be a blessed hope, and the first thing he's going to do is put them over, their, over his knee and spank them. That this just doesn't make sense to me. And the Bible, I don't think, teaches that at all. The Bema is about reward or loss of reward. If I have... If my two sons do a project for me, say some yard cleanup, and I tell them, hey, do a good job, work hard, uh, be faithful, and when you're done, not only will I pay you, but I'm going to give you a reward, a bonus. And then they come in when the job's done, and I give one of them a $20 tip because I thought, man, I was watching out the window, and I thought you did a great job, but I give my other son a $10 tip. <laughs> the one that gets the $10 tip is not going to feel punished. <laughs> you know, a lack of reward is not punishment. But spending a thousand years weeping and wailing and gnashing your teeth, that's punishment. And I don't believe the Bible teaches that. Another mistake that some within the free grace movement teach is that believers can be under the wrath of God. I don't believe this. And uh, I think it's a, a grave misunderstanding of Paul's teaching in the book of Romans. So I, I just want to be clear. That's not what all people in the free grace can't believe. In fact, frankly, all of these mistakes represent the vast minority of those who hold to a traditional dispensational grace position. Free grace. Uh, some also believe that Christ's deity is not essential to the gospel, that you can be saved without understanding that Jesus is the Son of God. I disagree. I think you have to understand that He's not like any other human, that He is God in the flesh, that He rose from the dead, that He alone has the power to forgive sin. Uh, there are some uh, within this camp who have all kinds of views uh, that are widely inconsistent when it comes to eschatology. Uh, those of you who followed Not By Works Ministries for any length of time at all know that one of our passions, in addition to the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel, is the end times and the study of eschatology, this notion of what lies ahead, and that 16% of the biblical text that is yet to be fulfilled, right? And, uh, and so, again, being a dispensationalist, I hold to a traditional pre-tribulational, premillennial view of Scripture. I think that's the best understanding of the Bible in its literal, grammatical, historical perspective. And therefore, uh, that, that's, that's my view, and that's the view of most traditional dispensational free grace folks. But some that hold some of these other views also arrive at some pretty divergent views when it comes to eschatology. And then finally, another thing that I felt uncomfortable with that led me to sort of, you know, associate with other people within the free grace group rather than, you know, some of these larger uh, more well-known groups like Free Grace Alliance and G uh, GES, which again, I encourage you to check those groups out. Some great men of God and women of God that are part of those groups and uh, I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, they're all a bunch of heretics. I just have some honest disagreements about these uh, matters. And one of the things that concerned me was there, there was a tendency toward doctrinal compromise. When I was in the leadership and I served on the board of FGA, you know, there were those that suggested we could have anyone come speak, even if they had widely divergent views on important issues. You know, there were amillennialists that came and spoke. There were people who believed you could raise people from the dead and were highly charismatic that came and spoke. And while I certainly, you know, agree that the most important issue is the gospel and the fact that it's by free grace, <laughs> Uh, I think there are other lines that I won't cross, and, and so I was uncomfortable with that. So there you go. That, what is free grace? You know, If you believe grace is free and that salvation cannot be earned, then 
I encourage you to come alongside Not By Works Ministries or Plum Creek Chapel if you're in the Denver metro area or Cornerstone Bible Institute if you're looking for a great historic conservative school that's going to proclaim the inerrant Word of God from a dispensational perspective and promote the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. However, if you believe that in order to be saved, you must commit, surrender, forsake your sin, promise to follow God, make Jesus Lord, or otherwise bring something to the table in order to get to heaven, then I just want to be honest. Not by Works Ministries, Plum Creek Chapel, or Cornerstone Bible Institute are most definitely not for you. And if that is the case, then I pray that you'll come to embrace God's amazing, pure, and absolutely free grace. Because you know what? When you do, it will revolutionize your relationship with God and with His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, thanks for letting me share this message. Please share it widely with others. And anytime someone uses free grace as a pejorative, negative label, point them to this video and let them know, hey, do you really know what free grace is? And what is it you're really disagreeing with based on what we've said in this video. Thanks for watching and God bless.